in my late teens and early 20s, I read a lot of Christian biographies. Grew up in a lovely church with lovely people, but there weren't a lot of people in the next kind of group ahead of me, the young adult group kind of ahead of me that you'd naturally look to for heroes. There weren't that many that were really going on with God, and so I was looking for some heroes who'd inspire me to really follow Jesus. And so I started reading biographies. And I found biographies about people like Jim Elliott, who the older generation will know was one of five missionaries to Ecuador that were martyred in the 1950s. And I read his story, his journals, uh, where he wrote things like, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And Jim Elliott inspired me read the story of a guy called Sandy Ford, not well known at all. He was a young man who died in heart surgery at the age of 21. He was Billy Graham's nephew, and he had a real heart to serve God with his life, but passed it away at this really young age. But his story inspired me, and part of the reason I'm a pastor today is because of Sandy Ford and his story. There was another biography that I read that, that I really found challenging and inspiring as well, and it was the story of Josh McDowell. Uh, Josh McDowell is an apologist. He's still alive and still working and still writing today, and he's one of those people that helps to explain why the Christian faith makes sense and help us to defend it when friends have questions about what we believe. Um, he would be the, the, the equivalent 30 years ago of Lee Strobel today. So Lee Strobel would probably be the name you'd be most familiar with with books like The Case for Faith and The Case for Christ and so on. Well, 30 years ago, the go-to apologist was Josh McDowell. And so books like Evidence That Demands a Verdict and The Resurrection Factor and books like that are still actually part of my library today. And so I found his uh, biography one time uh, called A Skeptic's Quest. And so I, um, I read that and, again, was profoundly inspired by him. He became one of my heroes. But there was one particular story in that book that I've come back to this week because it triggered a memory. It was one of the most powerful and challenging uh, parts in his entire biography. He was talking about he's uh, been part of Campus Crusade for Christ, which in New Zealand is now called Tandem Ministries. He was part of Crusade for many, many years. But he was very new to the staff of Campus Crusade, and he was asked to organize one of their conferences. It was at this remote conference center slash Christian camp out in the wilderness somewhere for hundreds of Campus Crusade workers, and they were flying in some of the biggest names in the evangelical world to be the speakers, and he was asked to organise this thing. So he poured his heart and soul into organising this conference, made it brilliant, made the conference centre look really cool in this remote location, and these speakers flew in, and everything was ready for a fantastic three days of this conference. And then as the conference started... This stomach bug hit the conference. And this round of 24-hour diarrhea bug went raging through everyone. So it took out most of the volunteers that Josh had. It took out a number of the conference attenders for about 24 hours. Um, and it also took out the toilet and plumbing system at the conference centre. And so Josh had had... had expectations that he would be at these main sessions in this conference, soaking up this amazing teaching at this conference he'd organised, and instead he was on his hands and knees with a plunger in one hand and a toilet brush in the other, going from toilet to toilet throughout the conference, trying to get it sorted out. 
He said in his biography it culminated on the last morning where he had personally picked his favorite speaker to close the conference. And if there was one session that he wanted to get to, it was that session. He'd missed everything else. But the news came just as the last session was starting that a few more toilets were blocked up, no one else was available, they were all still in bed, and so he grabbed his plunger and his toilet brush, and off he went and missed this last final session. And he said he had one of those prayer times with God. You know the angry ones? (laughs) Where he's kneeling in front of, I don't even want to describe the kind of toilet it looked like, with his plunger and his brush, pouring out his frustration to God. You know, really? Could you not give me one session, Lord? And as he was kneeling there and and telling God how frustrated and angry and annoyed he was, the single thought popped into his brain. It's been 30 years since I read his story, and I can still remember his question. Helps to turn the remote on. That's not the question. The question was this. If Jesus was willing to lower himself and wash his disciples' feet, why can't I lower myself and clean their toilets? I think I was about 21 years old when I read that. And I don't want to be unfair to those of you who are in your early 20s, but you can kind of be a little bit entitled at that age. I certainly was. I was a pretty arrogant young man. But that statement hit me. Man, if Jesus could lower himself to wash his disciples' feet, why can't I lower myself to clean their toilets? He's basing that from the beautiful story in John chapter 13. During the Last Supper, where they, uh, Jesus inaugurated communion, and the night before he was betrayed, celebrated Passover with his followers, and, and he washed his disciples' feet. In fact, we're going to look at that story in a month's time. Our main preaching series this year is in the second half of John's Gospel, John 13 to 21, and so we're going to look at that exact story four Sundays from now as we launch into that new series. And many uh, teachers and and, and preachers of the Bible have coined a phrase uh, from that story about Jesus washing disciples' feet that we should be people of the basin and people of the towel. The idea that we should follow Jesus' example. The the difficulty I've always had with that is that I romanticize that story. I have this beautiful image of Jesus kneeling before people and washing their feet, and I I make that, in my mind, a beautiful picture. And I forget that those feet in open sandals had walked through dust and, and sheep droppings and camel plops and who knows what else on those streets... And what Jesus was doing was something that not even the lowest slave would do. And I romanticize that. And this statement from McDowell has stayed with me for the last 30 years. Because I can romanticize Jesus washing the disciples' feet. I can't romanticize Josh McDowell cleaning their toilets. But if Jesus can wash their feet, why can't I do this? See, and rather than suggesting that we should be people of the basin and the towel, could I change the image? That if you're a follower of Jesus, 
and I'm a follower of Jesus. We should be people of the brush. (laughs) And today, that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about what it means for you and I to be people of the brush. We are in this series that we're calling Summit Journey. We are looking at what it means to grow and become more like Jesus. Summit Journey is the name of our new discipleship strategy we're rolling out. And as I've been saying every week till now, you're probably bored with it. Our key question for this year is how am I planning to intentionally become more like Jesus this year? And we've wrapped some other questions around that. Why do I want to grow and become more like Jesus? Where am I going to do that in my life? Who am I going to do that with? How am I going to do that? But we've spent the last few weeks particularly going after that second question. Where in my life, which part of my life do I intentionally want to grow in and become more like Jesus this year? And we're walking through these seven traits of a growing disciple of Jesus. And we've gone through five so far. And this morning we're at this one that I've called humble service which is a nice way of talking about being people of the brush. Next week, by the way, we'll finish with joyful generosity. Now, I'm going to teach through that last trait, but then I'm going to wrap the series next week as well and talk about, okay, what's the next steps for each of us? What's involved in you making a plan to intentionally become more like Jesus uh, this year? That's what we're going to do next week. But for today, we're on this idea of humble service. And this is the question that I want us to think through and and, and make the core idea for this morning. To what extent am I faithfully reflecting the humility of Jesus by serving other people through everyday life? To what extent am I faithfully reflecting the humility of Jesus by picking up my brush and doing whatever I need to do to serve other people in his name? That's the key question that I want us to wrestle with this morning. And to do that, I want to look at a story with you in the Gospel of Mark. So if you've got a Bible, paper Bible, your nap on your phone, iPad, whatever it is, I'd really love you to come and look at the story with me this morning. It's found in Mark's uh, Gospel chapter 10, verses 42 and 45 is where we're going to center our time today. Uh, Mark is one of the four Gospels, one of the four biographies of Jesus in our New Testament. And this story comes kind of midstream in where Mark has taken his story of Jesus and his followers and what Jesus is teaching. The context is that the key followers of Jesus, his main disciples, the 12, have been arguing over time about who's the most important and who's the greatest and which one Jesus loves the most and who's going to be the most important when Jesus has finally made the king and sets up his kingdom. So in fact, if you go back a chapter from where we're going to be, we're going to be in Mark 10, if you're turning there, but in Mark chapter 9, you read these words when he was in the house, Jesus asked them, what were you guys arguing about over on the road? But they kept quiet, probably because they were embarrassed, because on the way, they'd argued about who was the greatest. So this was the ongoing argument that these 12 guys had had. They'd come to realize that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. He was the king. And in their mind, that meant he's coming to set up his kingdom. He's going to lead a revolt against the Romans, boot them out. He's going to establish his kingdom over Israel and ultimately over the whole world. And he's chosen us, and that means we are right in the inner crowd of the king. I mean, that is awesome. 
But as they have these images and pictures of how amazing that will be and how much power and prestige they're going to have, they begin arguing amongst themselves about who's going to be the closest to Jesus. That's the context of the story. And so it's in response to that, Jesus gives this teaching. So let me put my brush out of the way. Let me um, just read these verses. It's just four verses I want to focus on. So Mark 10, verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus does three really simple things in this passage to completely upturn and overturn our concept of what greatness versus service really looks like. The first thing he teaches his followers is that humble servants reject false ideas of greatness. Humble servants reject false ideas of greatness. So Jesus doesn't start with the disciples, which would have been a good place to start because they had some really false ideas of greatness. He starts with the Romans and the other Gentile foreigners who were ruling over them. And he points to them, people who don't know God and have no concept of God, and and says, look at at their concept of greatness. So the Romans, the Gentiles, the, the people who don't know God, when they get into positions of power, they strut and they usurp and they misuse they accumulate for themselves, they hurt others. When you look at the world system, um, there are people's understanding of what greatness looks like and what power looks like and what, what being a ruler looks like is, is utterly wrong. So Jesus talks about the rulers of the Gentiles and they're lording it over them and they're strutting and they're misusing their power and, and exercising their authority. And then he says at the beginning of verse 43 in our Bibles, not so with you. So Jesus is rejecting the, the world's way of understanding what, what greatness is. And he does that because his disciples had fallen into the trap of coming up with the wrong idea of what greatness looked like. Because their definition of greatness, the reason they were even having this ongoing debate about who was the most important and who Jesus loved most and who was going to get the best posse, was because they'd bought into the world system and understanding of what greatness even is. So let's look at the context of that. Come back if you've got your Bible open to verse 35. Because this is the immediate context now. So this ongoing debate's been happening, but this is the immediate context of these verses. Verse 35, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, two of the twelve apostles. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Matthew's account of the story says that actually they came with their mum. Um, some scholars, you can't make a watertight case for this, but some scholars believe James and John might have actually been Jesus' cousins. So their mum was Jesus' auntie. So they decide they're going to get around the other ten apostles and they're going to get their mum to come have a chat with Jesus about giving them the best positions. Mark doesn't tell us mum is here. It's not that Mark got the story wrong. Mark is just wanting us to understand the mum might have said the words, 
but James and John were driving this thing. And I love how they do this. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. You know what that is? That's two blokes walking into the bank and pushing a cheque across the counter to the manager and saying, would you just mind signing that for us? And then we'll fill in the details on the cheque after you've signed it. That's what they're doing, isn't it? Jesus, would you just say yes, and then we'll tell you what you're saying yes to. And Jesus just slides the, the cheque back across the counter unsigned and says, ah, uh, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Instead, verse 36, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other on your left in your glory. You know when a new government gets elected in New Zealand every three years and they have the first meeting of the cabinet and there's always a photo in the newspapers of whoever's the Prime Minister, Jacinda, sitting in like the top chair and there's the, the, the Deputy Prime Minister and there's the, the Foreign Minister and there's the Minister of Finance, you know, and, and down the end is the Minister of the Statistics Department or whatever the lowest cabinet position, you know. That's exactly what James and John are going for. They're saying, in your kingdom... We get, you're the king, so we're not trying to knock you out of that role, Jesus. We're happy for you to be king. But could one of us be the deputy king and the other one be the minister for foreign affairs and, and, and then we'll let Judas debate the other guys about minister of finance and so on. All right, Peter can be minister of transport and, you know, Bartholomew can be minister of housing and whatever. But can we, can we be here in the photos in the paper? And Jesus just looks at them and says, you don't know what you're asking for. And he challenges their thinking about that, asking if they can do what he's going to do, which is to actually go through death and suffering on their behalf, to drink the cup and to go undergo this baptism. And then you jump down to verse 41, and you read these words. When the ten, which is the other apostles, heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Now, don't be fooled. They are not indignant that these two idiots would even think of doing that because they'd never thought of that. They were indignant that they hadn't thought of that first and James and John had got in because they really wanted those two positions. That's the context of this. And so these 12, the closest followers of Jesus, and in the context of Mark's gospel, Jesus has now started explaining to the apostles three times now that he is going to Jerusalem as the Messiah, but not to set up an earthly kingdom. He is going to die and lay down his life for them. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah and I'm going to lay down my life and suffer. And they are hearing I'm the Messiah and I'm going to set up my kingdom so they're making a mad scramble for the best seats. And Jesus is pushing back on them and saying, you've missed the point. See, James and John are thinking that greatness equals power. To have the, the chance to make some decisions and to, to lord it over other people. And they're equating a greatness with position, with the photo shoot of them right next to Jesus, and the prestige that comes with that, the fame that would come with that. This is how, this, this is how our world system defines greatness. Greatness is being the most powerful, the highest position, 
the, the most prestige, the person who, who's the wealthiest, the person who's the greatest celebrity, the person who has received the most honor. You think about who makes the celebrity news around the world. I smile at the celebrity news of New Zealanders because it just feels like the celebrity seen New Zealanders naff. <laughs> it's like people who want to be like Hollywood stars and want to be the elite. But you know what? Woman's Day doesn't do articles on the ordinary person up the road with a few kids and a nine-to-five job who cleans for a living. Woman's Day doesn't care about that you went to the movies last week. It cares about the celebrity who showed up and what they wore and, and who they're dating now. That's, that's greatness in our world. And Jesus is coming along to these guys in verse 42 and says, this is how the rulers of the Gentiles do it. This is how the people in authority do it in our world system. This is what celebrity looks like in our world today. Not so with you. It's not about power. It's not about wealth. It's not about fame and prestige. A few decades ago, the people who were considered great were these guys. The Fab Four. They, in some ways, changed music, popular music. At one point, one of them announced that they were now more popular than Jesus. But a few years later, one of them, George Harrison, reflecting on those years of fame, wrote these words. At first, we all thought we wanted the fame. But after a bit, we realized that fame wasn't really what we were after at all, just the fruit of it. However, after the initial excitement and thrill had worn off, I, for one, became depressed. Is this all we have to look forward to in life? See, ultimately, the way we define greatness, the things that the world tells us make you great, prestige, wealth, comfort, fame, they're actually idols. They're false gods that we think will make us significant, that we think that's, that's what we want, that's what we need to really make it in life. And Jesus is coming along and completely undercutting all of that. And saying, no, humble servants in my kingdom utterly reject all of those false ideas about greatness. Here's the question I want us to think about for just a second. What does greatness look like for you? What does greatness look like in your life? See, if you're in education at the moment, studying, then academic recognition, straight A's or excellences, academic awards can become, well, that's greatness. If I, could, if I could top the class, if I could get an excellence in that grade, if I could come out with my degree in amazing scholarships, that, that's what greatness looks like. Or maybe if you're at high school, you're not caring about the grades. It's actually about popularity. If I could just be popular with everyone else, if I could be one of the in crowd, that, that's greatness at my school. Or if you're in a business world, greatness looks like being on the fast track of your company or your career. It's being one of the up-and-comers, being recognized as, as this person, this guy, this girl is, is one to watch. You're a... Uh, parent of toddlers, 
You know what greatness looks like? People praising you for how well controlled your toddler is in the supermarket. Isn't it? That is greatness. Especially when someone else's toddler's in the next aisle having a tantrum. You know what greatness looks, greatness looks like in the pastoral world? When you go to a pastor's conference and the first question pastors ask each other is, how big's your church? And it happens a lot. See, we all have these false ideas. No matter what we do with our lives, we have these false ideas that the world tells us, this is greatness. And Jesus comes along and he sweeps all of those awards off the table and says, that is not greatness. Not so with you. Instead, then, he redefines how we should look at life, which is the second point. In the next verses, he tells us that humble servants understand their core identity. Now, when I put these slides together at the start of the week, I worded this slide very differently. I worded the second point differently. What I said originally in this is that humble servants reject false ideas of greatness and they grasp true greatness. Because I've always understood Jesus' words this way. That Jesus is saying, look, the rulers of this world, they, they say this is greatness, and you just want to strive for that, and you want to climb over everyone to get that, and you want to do whatever it takes to get to the top of the mountain. But what Jesus comes along and he says, this is the way I've always understood it, that actually, no, the path to get there is servanthood. So if you want to, if you want to be great, then you serve. And, and then one day you'll become great. So I've always understood what Jesus is saying in these verses as saying, no, no, you need to find it's a different pathway. And then the more I've looked at this passage, especially in just the last couple of days, the more I've come to realize that actually Jesus is doing something way more fundamental than that. I think I've misunderstood this passage. Jesus is not just saying it's a different pathway. Jesus is saying it's an entirely different mountain. You're going up. Jesus isn't just saying, no, the, the, the way to true greatness is by being a servant. Because he's just demolished that whole vision of greatness. He swept those definitions right off the table and said, no, that is not even how you define greatness. Instead, what he's saying is, no, you must be the servant, and you must be the slave. In other words, what Jesus is saying is not just be a servant and one day you'll be great. Jesus is saying something incredibly radical. He's saying this, if you're my follower, you are a servant. And in being a servant... That's greatness. See, that's very different. He's not just offering a whole, a different pathway to greatness. He's saying, no, no, no. This is what greatness is. It's being the best servant you can be. See, what he's doing is saying we need to understand what our core identity is. We're a servant. In fact, 
even more radically than that. These two lines run in parallel. Whoever wants to be great among you must be the servant. But then the next line, verse 44, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave. They're two different words. But what Jesus is saying is not, this is a different way to get to greatness. He's saying this is greatness. To grasp who you are and to live into that identity as a servant, in fact, even a slave. One New Testament professor, Dr. Mark Strauss, writes this, though servant and slave, these two words, can be used synonymously, the latter is actually the more lowly term indicating complete ownership and subjugation. In other words, what he's saying is, what Jesus is saying is, if you're my follower, you're my servant. Actually, even more than that, you're my slave. Just sit with that for a minute. Can you say those words? I am Jesus' slave. How does that make you feel? Because that's actually really radical, isn't it? It's so radical that most of our translations of the New Testament hide this. See, these are two different words in the Greek language. Diakonos is the word for servant, from which we get our word deacon. So it means a general servant, one who serves. So it can be used to mean a minister or a deacon in the church. The other word, slave, that's the Greek word doulos. Interestingly enough, though, most of our English translations, including the NIV that I really love, most of our English translations, most of the time you find doulos in the New Testament, slave, guess how it translates that word? Servant. Because being called a slave, great. I don't want to, I'm, not, I'm not anyone's slave. Well, actually, I am. Because it's exactly what the New Testament teaches, that I am the slave of Jesus. Jesus told this fascinating parable. This is in Luke chapter 17. He says, suppose one of you has a slave. Right, it says servant in the NIV, but actually it's doulos. Suppose one of you has a slave plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the slave when he comes in from the field, come and sit down to eat? In other words, he says, imagine you've got a slave out in the sun all day with the sheep, and the slave comes back into the house. How many of you would say, oh, you poor slave, come, come and sit down and I'll fix you a, a meal? Jesus says, no one does that. Won't you say, slave... Go and sort yourself out, wash your hands, make my dinner, come and serve me, and then you can eat. Jesus is appealing to how normal people in his day would have handled this. And he says, and then will you turn around and thank the slave because they did what they told? Both the questions Jesus asked, the implied response is no. Would a master sit down and serve the slave? No. Would a master uh, sit down and thank the slave profusely for what a great job they've done of serving? Not at all. And then Jesus pulls a switch in this parable. You've probably never seen this parable before. We don't really talk about this parable that much. But here's what Jesus says next. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, you should say, 
We are unworthy slaves. We've only done our duty. See, he starts the parable and tells the parable as though you're the master and then he switches it in the last verse and says, actually, you're the slave and you should simply say, I've just done my duty because this is who I am. See, this is great. This is, this, and Jesus is saying, this is our core identity and this is what greatness is. To do a really good job of being a slave for him. See, this was the meaning in the series we did last year, one plus one on relationships. This is the meaning of this verse, 1 Corinthians 6. Flee from sexual immorality. Don't you know your bodies are the temple of the Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Look at this next line. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. We call that redemption. And we normally think about that as the celebration that we've been freed from slavery to sin and slavery to death and slavery to the, to the devil. What we don't always understand is that we now have a new master and we're still slaves, but we now serve the one for whom we were created. And therefore we honour him. Now you may be looking at that and going, well, hold on, wait a minute, that, that doesn't sound right to me. Didn't Jesus say in John 15 that I no longer call you slaves, I now call you friends? Yes, he did. And didn't Paul say in Galatians, because you know your Bible so well, wait a minute, Paul wrote, you're no longer a slave, but you're God's child. So we're no longer slaves. And I would say it's a both and. Because what Jesus and Paul are rejecting is an aspect of slavery. Jesus is saying you're no longer slaves, but you're friends in the sense that slaves don't know what their masters are planning, but Jesus said, I've told you everything. Paul is saying, you're no longer a slave, but you're now God's child in the sense that you are set free and are brought into everything that your father wants to give you. So yeah, you are a child of God, adopted as a son or daughter if you've trusted in Jesus. And yes, you are Jesus' friend, when we obey him and submit to him and follow him. But we are also his slave. Which is why Paul will write at the very start of some of his letters, introduce himself this way, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. In fact, he doesn't even call himself an apostle to begin with, just, just a slave. I, I don't like it when people try and call me Pastor Brad. Now, in some cultures, that's especially meaningful and respectful, and so I love it if that comes from your culture. I, I, that's, that really blesses me. But I don't like the idea of pastors strutting around saying, call me Pastor Brad. Call me Apostle Brad. <laughs> call me Bishop. <laughs> because look at, how, look at how Paul introduces himself. Call me slave. That's all I am. I am a slave of Christ Jesus. So he, he, he writes this to the Corinthian church. For what we preach, which is him and Timothy writing the letter, what, what Timothy and I preach is not ourselves, but it's Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. See, that, that's what church leadership is. 
It's an invitation. Sorry, I hadn't made this clear to Bryn and John earlier. (laughs) It's an invitation to announce, I am now your slave. But actually, this is the Christian life. This is our core identity. Yeah, we're children of God. And we are deeply loved. And we are part of his temple and his family. And we are his ambassadors and we are his stewards. And we are also his slaves. We've been bought by him and he is our master and he owns us. And we now live for him and for his glory. And when Jesus comes along and radically deconstructs the disciples' view of greatness. He's not just proposing a different pathway. Look, you just be a servant and in time, I'll exalt you. Jesus is not saying that. Jesus is saying that view of greatness is rubbish. Understand who you are. You're my servant. You're my slave. I've bought you. You know what true greatness looks like? Being the very best slave for Jesus you can be. That's what Jesus is. See, that's radical, isn't it? That's a totally different understanding of what we're called to be and do. And it's underlined then in the final verse where Jesus simply says, humble servants follow the humble servant. We are to live like this, we're to be like this, we're to see ourselves like this because that's the one we follow. He is the humble servant. In fact, Jesus, in verse 45, places two incredibly contrary ideas together. He says in verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So on one hand, notice the way he describes himself, the Son of Man. It's one of Jesus' most common titles for himself. But where it comes from is from a prophecy in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7 where he is this vision of God whom he calls the Ancient of Days. And then he says, And in my vision I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man. A Son of Man. This is where Jesus gets the title from. But look at the description. He was coming on the clouds of heaven, which suggests deity and authority. And he was given authority and glory and sovereign power, and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. So when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's saying, that's me. I'm the king. I'm the one that will establish my kingdom and will reign forever and ever over all peoples and all nations and this whole earth. But look at verse 45 again. This is me. And I have come to serve. And I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. See, those two ideas are radical. Because while Jesus sweeps away the false ideas of greatness that our world has, he himself says, I have that. All power is actually mine. All prestige is actually mine. All wealth is actually mine. All honor is due to me. But I've laid this down to serve you. And I've laid it down to save you. In fact, in the reading that the team did for us earlier, part of it goes like this. 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a doulos. The son of man, the king of kings, became a slave. And so Jesus here says, humble servants follow the humble servant. So this is the question. To what extent do I faithfully reflect the humility of the one who laid aside everything to be a slave? To what extent does my life reflect the one who was willing to clean up every mess of my life and pick up the brush for me? To what extent am I doing that? To what extent are you and I people of the brush? To what extent are we people of the brush at work? Whether we're the lowest employee, the cleaner, the lowest secretarial position, the most menial job on the building site, to what extent do we take the brush to work each day? To what extent do we take the brush if we're the boss, if we're in senior management, if we get our own corporate bathroom? To what extent do we carry the brush at home? To what extent are we people of the brush with our own family members? To what extent are we willing to be the slave of our spouse? The slave gulp of our teenagers? the slave, equally big gulp, of our parents, the slave of our flatmates. To what extent are we people of the brush in our sports teams? To what extent are we people of the brush in our friendships? And to what extent are we people of the brush in our church? And by the way, we have people of the brush in our church. Some people rocked into this place at 7 o'clock this morning with a brush and they set up for us at servanthood. And long after we've all gone home to eat lunch, there will be another team who packs down because they're people of the brush. And we have wonderful team members who sacrifice sitting in here on Sundays so they can sit with the youngest kids in our church with a brush and serve our children. And whenever, wherever you serve in this church, if you are, you are, to some degree, reflecting the image of Jesus. Thank you. Because that's who we're called to be. To what extent am I faithfully reflecting the humility of Jesus by serving people in everyday life? Four quick suggestions as we close. Number one, reject entitlement. There is something in every one of us that wants to have a false view of greatness. We want to sit in the lazy boy and be waited on. We want to climb the corporate ladder to be able to order other people around. 
We want to be comfortable and have people look after us. And we need to work really hard to reject that sense of entitlement. I want to say something on behalf of the youngest generations. Millennials have been called by different people the entitled generation. I think that's really unfair. Because we were all teenagers and young adults once, those of us who were older. And I'm sorry, but I know enough baby boomers and baby busters and builders to know we were all entitled. And many of us still are. We need to stop bagging millennials. Because we all struggle with entitlement. So let's reject entitlement. Secondly, I think we need to cultivate gratitude. I think this idea of being the slave of Jesus, the servant of Christ, becomes easier when we recognize how much he has given us. And I think the more we cultivate a a spirit of thankfulness, a spirit of gratitude for all that God has done for us, the easier it is to then honor him. Thirdly, take the initiative. Whenever you see an opportunity to serve, grab it. Be the first. When there's a pile of dishes at home, take the initiative. I don't know about what you were like. You were a teenager now, or we were a teenager once. But good night in the family I grew up in, there were huge arguments. It's not my turn. It's not fair. I did it last Friday. What about him? I mean, every home's the same, isn't it? I mean, I'm now the parent. I'm now the one telling my kids to do the dishes, but they're no different to what I was like. Imagine the world (laughs) where families of Christ followers are all carrying the brush (laughs) and arguing over dishes in a completely different way. No, I'll do the dishes. No, no, no. You did it the other night. Let me do it. Oh, honestly, I have the spiritual gift of dishwashing, and it is my joy. And I know I'm being silly and facetious. But isn't that, isn't it? Isn't that what Jesus is going for? That's how radical it is. To be the slaves of Christ and the slaves of one another. Take the initiative. The photocopiers run out of paper at work. You be the one to go get another ring and load it up. People's water bottles are empty at that business meeting. You be the one to go fill up the water. You be the one to do the smallest things and serve people in the name of Jesus. Reject entitlement. Cultivate gratitude. Take the initiative. And finally, buy a toilet brush. (laughs) I actually mean this. I bought this for eight bucks yesterday at the warehouse. (laughs) What was that? Never mind. I don't want to know. You know where this is going? This is going to go on my desk at work. And I'm really thinking of serving the rest of my staff by buying them one each. I think this is a powerful symbol, though, isn't it? Whether you literally buy a toilet brush or not, can I invite us to make this metaphor a key metaphor of our lives? We are people of the brush. 
We are slaves of Jesus. And we're going to be people who serve. I'm going to ask the team if they'd come back up. And this morning, we want to celebrate communion. We're going to take some time to worship Jesus, the humble servant. The one who is the son of man. The glorious king who is going to reign over all, but the one who became a slave for me and you. And so as the team leads us in in just some worship, you can stand, you can sit, you can sing, you can listen, you can pray, whatever you'd like to do. We have communion up the front here on the tables. Whenever you're ready, you just come and partake. But I want to ask you to do this this morning as you do. As you come, And you take the bread and the juice that speaks of the Son of Man who became a slave for you. Would you come today celebrating the freedom that Jesus gives, but also celebrating the slavery he has brought you into? Would you come this morning, whenever you want to, to take the elements as a slave of Christ? And come with the attitude, Lord, here I am. Help me to serve wherever you take me. Even today. Even tomorrow. Even this week. Let's worship him.